Hi everyone. Before we begin, I wanted to say a big thank you for being here today and listening to the show. If you'd like to support Behind the Smile, you can do so by following this podcast and leaving a five-star review. Every rating and review helps this podcast to grow, meaning more people can discover these stories and find hope along their own journey. If you'd like to check out this week's Behind the Smile photo, head to ashbutters.com where you'll find all of the episode show notes. And with that, let's kick off this week's episode. Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviours in relation to mental health, trauma and addiction. My name's Ash and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smile. Today's guest is Cole Chance. Cole has been a seeker all her life. It's brought her to the depths of addiction, to all corners of the world, to the path of yoga, and most importantly, back home to herself. She's currently based in Australia and works as a recovery educator and trauma-informed yoga teacher. She teaches in many capacities from international retreats, teacher trainings and festivals to rehabs and prisons. Her flow, purpose, passion and most fluent language is in supporting humans who also know the narrow dark halls of addiction to emerge into a thriving life beyond. Cole believes in utilising curiosity and intellect, both mental and somatic, to peel back our many layers and find more freedom in our lives. Her teachings are woven with yogic and Buddhist philosophy, neuroscience, modern psychology, all on a bedrock of compassionate inquiry. Cole's sobriety date is the 27th of August 2014, which means she's now in her ninth year of recovery. So without any further delay, I'd love to welcome Cole onto the show. Cole, welcome to Behind the Smile. How are you? I'm so good. Happy to be here. So, so exciting to see you and to have you here. Now, first things first, so that we can paint a little bit of a picture for our listeners. You currently reside in Australia, but that's not where you're calling me from right now, is it? No, I'm actually in Bali right now. One of my one of my mini homes, my heart home for mm. sure. Mm. It's such a beautiful spiritual playground, mm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. What are you doing over there in Bali at the moment? Um, I taught a retreat uh, last month, and now I'm just I'm working, playing, eating, moving here. Yeah, just living. Yeah. Amazing. And mm-hmm. do you try to spend like periods of time there each year? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I used to spend about half of the year and now I, three to four months is the hope. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And then where's home for you in Australia? Um, my partner and I bought a farm in Australia, New South Wales. It's about halfway between Byron and Sydney on the coast. Um, so we've had that for the last couple of years. So that was home. That is home now becoming a home. Prior to that, I like moved and traveled and taught for about 10 years or nine. Yeah. Probably about nine years since sobriety without a home. So I just would go to the next place. So it's been a recalibration and, um, re getting to know what home means. So it's been interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Because I imagine in some ways it could be a little destabilizing to not have that home base with those four walls. How did that play out for you throughout your recovery? Well, I actually have never really had too much of a sense of home. I've always kind of been a rambler um, in my um, in my past life. I was also growing up young. We moved a lot, and then in my uh, in my party days, in my in my um, addiction days, both of those, I traveled a lot. I moved a lot. I was always going to the next place because the place, you know, was the problem. So it was always mm. like the next place was going to be it. The next place is going to be it. So I went. 
I lived in a lot of resort towns and bartended in different places, uh, ski resorts or different places. So I always was moving a lot. So that's always been something that's quite um, almost more familiar to me is a changing backdrop. So actually it feels more destabilizing in a way to have a solid place. So I'm trying to reorient my relationship to that, but it's been interesting. Yeah, I imagine it's been quite the journey. So that our listeners can get to know a little bit more about you before we dive deeper into your backstory. You've painted the picture of that you're in New South Wales, that you've got that property with your partner and I know you've got a dog. What's your dog's name again? Teddy. Teddy, how beautiful. (laughs) What does an average day look like for you? Well, in Australia? Yeah. They're all very different. It depends on where I'm at. In Australia, I would wake up to kookaburras, which is a very Mm. loud, your Australian listeners will know, a very, very loud, like a Muppet-like bird that sounds (laughs) like a monkey waking up. Um, I'll wake up to them. I'll have coffee. I'll do a little bit of movement. Well, first I'll cuddle, cuddle with my dog um, in the morning. And some sort of movement, whether that's like taking a walk down to the garden or doing some yoga, um, really attempting not to look at my phone in the morning. That doesn't always happen, but that's the intention. Um, A a best case scenario morning is that I would wake up, I would have coffee, I would read and I would move. Yeah. That's the goal. Yeah. I love that. And Mm -hmm. then are you teaching yoga back in Australia as well? I am teaching, I don't teach regular classes. It's hard for me to do that because I'm always on the move, but, um, retreats and then some Mm. like workshops and stuff. And I teach on online a lot so that I kind of do from anywhere. And then you've got your recovery coaching work as well, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. So that's called emerge and it's, um, it's an eight week program that I take people through. We do it online, but we go through it together. So it's all live online. And that's, um, yeah, I, I work in lots of different capacities, but this is definitely, um, yeah, I feel like the most powerful and I'm the most woven into it. Like it, it mm. feels the most flow for me. I love it. I love mm. it. Mm. Beautiful. I'm really looking forward to diving into your story today and to understand more about how you've created this life for yourself in recovery. But before we do that, we like to start off each episode talking about a photo. And the photo, Cole, is one that I ask my guests to bring in that represents a time in their life where they're hiding behind a smile. So they're presenting one version of themselves to the outside world, but internally they're really, really struggling. Now, when we had this conversation offline, you mentioned to me, oh gosh, Ash, like I don't even know if I have a photo accessible that would be over nine years old in my drinking days. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, one thing I have to say that I'm a little, I'm grateful that I got sober prior to like all of Instagram, (laughs) like Mm. myself being all over in like the photo world. But, um, so I don't, I don't have any, I don't even have any photos on my phone from over nine years ago, which is great. There's not as much evidence, which is awesome. But, um, I, I definitely, the photo that came to mind though, that, that I will, that I will share is it's actually an intake photo into like my seventh rehab or something. And I had this tendency to be, I was very colorful and I had this like idea of myself of like, um, almost like I had a third eye view of myself as being like in a movie or something. So if something was like sounded like it was going to be a good story or that would be ridiculous or that would be wild. Like I, I tended towards these, these things like this, this kind of, this kind of idea, but I had this, this version of myself as also like really, um, really big in my body. Like for, for instance, I'm not explaining this very well, but for instance, my nostalgia tells me that in my addiction, I had like my, or my party days, I had like my head tilted back with like a flapper, like a flapper hat on and my pinky out and my back leg thrown up. And I'm like, like this idea of me. Yeah. So whenever I went, uh, my intake picture at this last treatment center, I was really sick whenever I went in really, really sick. And I had a crown on my head. 
I was wearing a crown upon my intake into treatment. An actual crown. A crown. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I was smiling and I had a big Mm -hmm. smile on my face and I had just driven from Colorado to Texas with my uncle because they couldn't put me on a plane because I had to keep drinking. Like my, my blood alcohol was so high that it was a liability to, to have me not drink. Mm-hmm. I had a super high tolerance and I would have seizures if I just withdrew really quickly. So they actually mm-hmm. couldn't put me on a plane. So my uncle had to drive me down, keep me drinking. Mm-hmm. And I was, um, it was not, it was not a good scenario yet. Whenever I came in again, I had this, I had a crown on and a smile and I, you know, when I look back at that photo, they kept that photo for me. I'm so happy that they did. Mm. Um, it's like, I was so sick and I was so sad yet for me to admit that I wasn't choosing what I was doing. Like all of this under the guise of I'm choosing this, I'm having fun. See, I'm having fun. Mm. Um, for me to admit anything other than that, like it was too destabilizing. Like, that would have cracked the denial. So I had to wear this costume. Mm, and become almost like this character. Yeah. How much of a disconnect from reality do you think there was for you at that time? A lot. I kind of um, would have a bit of mania. Like I think I had a little bit of a, a little bit of mania and a bit of uh, a lot of <laughs> a lot of denial. Um mm but I was pretty far gone. I was pretty far gone at that point. Hmm. Yeah. And was, was the denial a, like, I think you just touched on it before, almost like a coping mechanism, like, because actually facing what reality was would have been too painful or too scary. Was it something that you were running from? Yeah. Yeah. So my denial was really focused around the fact that I'm just having fun, like Hmm. get off my back. I'm having a good time. Sometimes I may drink too much, but you know, like, so in order for me to really admit to myself that I had an issue, which everybody knew, and this is my like sixth treatment center, I'm in and out of hospitals and jails. And like, it's very, very clear. I've got a big problem, but like, I will not admit it. I am having a good time. And I would kind of, and that's kind of that geographic move is that I kept moving to places and I would stay in like big party environments Mm. so that I could hide, you know, better. Like I could, Mm. I could, um, be inside the the chaos without standing out as much yeah it's something I often talk to people about is this idea of when you're an addict or an alcoholic you whether it's conscious or unconscious you choose to surround yourself with people that drink and use like you Mm -hmm. so that you don't have to see the reality of your behavior and actually get a clear look at what's really going on. It's like, we're all doing this. What's the big deal? Like everybody stays out for three days. Right. So in order to normalize something that is actually so intense, I had to be in the intensity. So like I had to hang out with, you know, people who are like in it, you know, with Mm -hmm. me, because like that attempt to normalize and that attempt to maintain the sense of belonging and the sense of normality in something that wasn't normal. Yeah. And when you came out of those treatment centers, you mentioned you'd been in half a dozen. Do you remember what you were thinking and feeling every time you left? Like, was there a sense of, okay, like I'm going to change? Or was the whole time you were there where you were like, everybody's made a mistake. This really isn't a big deal. I'm just having fun. I'm going to go straight back. Yeah, normally the second, normally the latter. Mm -hmm. Um, there was only one, there was only one treatment center that I actually checked myself into. Um, and that was the one that seemed the most hopeful because I checked myself, you know, I checked, I chose to go into that one. I was in so much, I was in so much pain. Um, what, what number one was that? If you can remember four, number four. <laughs> that was number four. <laughs> yeah. How old were you at the time? Um, I was probably maybe 26 or something. 25, 26. Mm. Um, and yeah, 25, 26, that one I checked in myself, but, and I, I really gathered some traction and thinking that, okay, I can do this. Like I was imagining like, okay, maybe this is what it could look like. Like strategizing a different life 
And in the other ones, I didn't. In the other ones, I wasn't there. I was there on accident. I was there because I was coerced. I was there because I just had a bad night. <laughs> you know, all of these other things. Mm, mm, mm. I really would love to go back and understand a bit more about your childhood now. I know that you do trauma-informed yoga teaching and that you come with a lot of knowledge around compassionate inquiry. So I'm really curious to understand a little bit more about little Cole. Was, was little Cole, young Cole, was she a seeker from the beginning? Yeah, she was. And that's really interesting because that's one thing that my mom, you know, will say about me is I was very, I was raised in Oklahoma, which is very Christian, very conservative. I was like the earliest town that I remember living in was a town of like 200 people in like the wheat fields. <laughs> There's like nothing there. And I think that my mom said that I always was very different in terms of like, even down to little things like I would eat. Like most kids don't want to eat their vegetables or something. Or like I always wanted to eat something that my family wasn't eating. Or I'd pick like the oddest flavor of ice cream or the weirdest thing at the store. Like I always wanted something different, something different than what we had. Um, and so little things like that, I'm kind of like told stories about of something. And I wanted to live in New York City was a big thing. And everyone would be like, why do you want to move to New York City? Um, but I wanted something different. I wanted the other thing I also like wanted to be a dolphin trainer, which is really tragic for someone who lives in, <laughs> who lives in the middle of Oklahoma, like days drive away from the ocean. But so there was this idea of like, what's out there. I was fascinated by like globes of like, where are all these places? Like, so I always had that curiosity. Um, yeah. So that I feel like is something that was in my nature. And do you think that like I will, I'd love to understand more about what was going on within your family system and your family environment. And was there any link to that perhaps wanting you to leave or escape or look for something better outside of your family unit? More so only in a way that I was probably a bit understimulated. Mm -hmm. um, my parents worked a lot. They were more introverted. I was quite extroverted. Um, so I think that maybe, maybe there was a bit of understimulation, but I'm not, I'm not really sure. Mm. Um, I think a lot of it was just in my nature. Yeah. 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 It's... But there wasn't anything like that. There wasn't anything bad or challenging happening at home. One thing that I've really identified in terms of like attachment and stuff is that I do think that at some point I metabolized that I needed to process my own emotions like I didn't want to bother my parents. They were busy and they were working. Um, so I, I didn't like go to my parents with like issues or like emotional things or so-and-so said this at school or anything like that, just because like I didn't want to bother them. And I don't know if it's because I thought that like I was, I was a really good kid. So I don't know if it was that or if it was because I didn't think they had time or if it was just because I was, I was okay. I was a good kid. Like I was always praised for being smart and good and athletic. Mm. Mm. So I might want to have wanted to have been, you know, maintaining that facade. Yeah, of course. So tell me then, when did alcohol first come into the picture for you? So my world really started rocking. Um, again, I was like a confident, I was a confident child. I had lots of friends. Um, my world started rocking whenever I was about 13 and I really think there's just so many hormones coming in at this age. But in seventh grade, I lived in a town where there was like 10 or 12, I don't even remember, a bunch of different elementary schools. And then in seventh grade, all of those schools came into one school and it was like a thousand seventh graders, wow. which is a really not probably a good structure. So anyway, but I remember, I can still see the halls of the school. Like I remembered then, you know, it's really important that you're belonging at that age, that you're like learning how to fit in. And I remember like all of a sudden noticing like hierarchy of like, these are the cool kids. These are the not cool kids. These are the, this, like I started to see like factions and notice better than less than. And before that I, I didn't really, like, I don't recall that as much. So I think at that age I started to, um, want, I started to get self-conscious and I started to have social anxiety and I had no idea what that meant. Like 
I wouldn't have known that's what was happening. I just knew that I didn't feel comfortable. Mm, it was something that you were feeling in your body, but perhaps not being able to intellectualize at that point, I suppose. Yeah. I wasn't able to like articulate it. It was just like something was wrong with me in a way. And I like remember really clearly, like I would want to sit with these certain girls at the, at the, at like lunch. And all I wanted to do was like talk to these girls and like be, you know, say something funny or say something connecting. And like every day I like couldn't talk. Like I couldn't say anything or I'd say something. It would be so stupid and it was so hard and I just never had that. I never had that experience before. And it was, it was really challenging for me. And then I remember I tried alcohol and like the very first day that I drank, I remember I was at my friend's house and her like older brother had bought us booze and it was like peppermint schnapps and something else. And (laughs) I remember laying in her pool, like in an inner tube, and I was like twisting my legs around so you can kind of like go in a circle. And I was looking up at the stars, and I remember this so clearly. And I just said to myself, I'm going to do this forever. I'm going to do this forever. I felt like I had found the golden ticket. Like my life all of a sudden went into technicolor, and I felt big in my body. Like I had been dealing with this year not feeling myself. Like I couldn't speak. I couldn't, like, I wasn't like, I wasn't myself. And then all of a sudden I was like, blast Mm. off. Mm. It's almost like I've heard it described before as like, I've arrived. Like it's that moment where you like click into a gear. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because people who don't identify as being addicts or alcoholics, they don't get that experience. Like they try alcohol and they go, Oh Yeah. (laughs) you know that was okay but we sort of almost have this like profound internal shift within our energy when that when people like you and I drink and it's it's really hard to describe but I think you described it really beautifully so I want to know at that time when you were struggling to speak to people and you were going through puberty those uncomfortable feelings were there any core beliefs or ideas that you were identifying with at the time and I suppose what I mean by that I'll speak from my own personal experience one of my core beliefs was I'm not good enough and so I was always finding that I was adapting my true essence to suit those around me and you know from a really young age I was wearing different masks and I became a people pleaser so that I could make sure that you approved of me and that you loved me because I deeply didn't think that I was good enough or worthy enough of mm-hmm. that love if I were to be my true authentic self. Were there any stories like that playing around for you at that time? Yeah, definitely. I was trying to adapt to my surroundings, which I think is a very normal, that's a very human thing is that we're always yeah. seeking for, for belonging and depending on the situation that we're in, you know, that that's, it's quite, um, it's quite normal actually in a way to, to be, adjusting to seek that um there's probably there's a big spectrum of like how healthy that is to like normal Mm -hmm. and then really you know really unhealthy but yeah yeah absolutely Mm. absolutely so addiction we know it's progressive in nature so can you talk me through from that 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 lying in the pool on the tube staring up at the stars to Cole, who was in and out of rehabs, jails, and really battling with addiction. Talk me through that journey, if you can. Well, mm, that's a big one. One thing that I that I will mention that happened that was really big. So whenever I, um, I started drinking when I was 13, and then 14, I had had a, uh, I, I had a boyfriend, a very cool older boyfriend. And uh, the first time we ever had sex, I got pregnant when I was 14. So that, um, enters this like big trauma essentially. And then going from somebody who just wanted to fit in so much to then having everybody know that I'm essentially just, I'm a teen, teen pregnant girl now, (laughs) like imagine like how shattering that, that was, um, and had an abortion, very traumatic experience in Oklahoma. They do not take bode well to that. Um, and, uh, my parents, we moved States. So as a result of that, yeah. Like, so, I mean, and it was, 
to be closer to family in order to give me a new, you know, a fresh chance, but like so much shame that comes along with that. Like my family's embarrassed of me, but all of these, like I am bad is the story. So that was my story from that point on is I am bad. I am bad. And rather than like feeling the tenderness of that, um, cause I had no tools, you know, of course at that age, no emotional literacy. I, decided that I was going to be bad. Like Mm. I am a bad girl. I am a party girl. Like I'll show you bad. Mm. So instead of it being an affliction, I chose it as a choice. It became my costume. Like watch Mm. this. Mm. Firstly, I'm really so sorry that you went through that. It's, it is, it's a really traumatic thing to have to experience. And at such a young age, I can only imagine the fear that must have consumed you at that time and then having to obviously speak to your parents and go through that whole process, it would have mm-hmm. been really hard. I also really identify with being bad. I remember I, I had a different driving force behind it, but when I, my mum always reminds me that I was an absolute angel until I became a teenager. And then she said, mm-hmm. you, you did, you turned bad. Like you became wretched. And for me, it was more being driven from a sense of trying to seek my parents' attention and apparent, my parents' approval. They, their lives had really blown up and with my dad's career at the time and they were very rarely home and very rarely present. And so I was oscillating between these two characters where at school I'd be this very perfect, prefect, studious, academic, you know, fit inside the box. And then on the weekends I was drinking, drugging, having sex, doing all of this stuff that was like well beyond my years. And I did, I almost like I wore it as a badge of honor and I was proud of it in a way. Mm -hmm. It is like that shield of armor, isn't it? When you think about it. Yeah, absolutely. And so from 14, when you moved to this new city, did you start hanging out with people that were drinking and drugging? Were you still going to school? Like what was your world looking like? Yeah, pretty much immediately, you know, what you start to sniff each other out pretty easy. Like it wasn't very, it wasn't very hard to figure out like who my friends were going to be. Um, and you know, then starts a cycle at this school, you know, I'm sneaking out of the house, you know, doing all these things. And then we move again. And then, you know, I do the same thing there at this new school that I go to, it was kind of a tourist town. Um, we actually moved there because my dad's best friend was the principal but that seems like a good idea. But also it was a tourist town that a lot of money came into and a lot of cocaine and ecstasy came into. So before it was like a lot of alcohol and weed. And then I was introduced to a lot of money and cocaine and ecstasy at about like 16. Wow. So that was a whole other, that was a whole other component. Yeah. Did you finish school? I did. Yeah, I did. And then, Tell me, did you stay at home or did, were you straight out the door when you hit 18? I moved out before I graduated um, in a very dramatic, very dramatic scene. I actually crawled out of my house. Tell me more, please. I, I'd eat, we had like eaten a, bunch of, eaten a bunch of ecstasy with some friends and I decided like, we just all come to my house, but my parents were home. Like, you know, I'm like, oh, just come to my house. And then, of course, they're like, what are you doing? Like, who are these people? Like, blah, blah, blah. So I, like, put my stuff in a bag, like in a plastic trash bag, and, like, got in a fight with my parents. And I, like, just couldn't uh, – I just remember, like, the world was spinning, like, on whatever drugs I was on. And I mm. kind of had to, like, crawl out of the house with my bag. My friends were out there waiting for me. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I actually – I've so been there. This is wild. Okay, so you you leave before you graduated, but there was a period of time there where you were out in the world existing. Were you consumed by your addiction at this point or were you sort of able to function to a degree? It was back and forth. Like I was – I didn't go to school for a while and then like I was found and, you know, started going back to school, but I was – I was consumed mentally with where are we getting more? Who's getting it? How are we doing it? Like I was obsessed with it, mm. but I was like, I was still functioning. Um, unfortunately I was quite functioning 
for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm working at bars. I'm like cocktail waitressing, but it's all a party. It's just all a party. Mm-hmm. I'm dating a cocaine dealer. Um, it's so it's like, I'm not functioning like super sociably, but I'm functioning in a party environment, like yeah. I'm working at bars and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, like I, I, I attempted to go to college, but that didn't really work out. I just, yeah, just partied for the most mm. part. Mm. Did that get you into any serious trouble or were there any major consequences throughout that time? Not at that age. I didn't start getting like DUIs and stuff until later. It essentially was um, just fighting with my parents, fighting with being in really bad relationships, um, a lot of risky behavior, risky situations, but not, not anything, um, not anything like halting. So when did the halting start to happen? Well, honestly, the halting didn't really stop and to start until the very, very end, but mm. I had lots of bottoms and like that started, um, I started getting D I think I had three DUIs and I think I probably got the first one when I was like 24. Um, I started going, started, I think I took, went to my first rehab around that time. There was many different iterations and it's, it's quite blurry, but I might be in a phase of like cocaine and Xanax or something, cocaine, Xanax and alcohol. And then I would, you know, hit a wall, something would explode, you know, in my life. And then it would be like, okay, I'm done. Mm. And then I would go to, um, a treatment center. My parents would send me to, and I would go because I didn't, I, I hurt and I wanted to feel better, but I didn't want to get sober. There's a difference. You wanted the consequences to stop, but you didn't necessarily want to have to give it up for that right. to happen. Mm-hmm. So this was kind of like a little break for me to re-strategize and reformulate, you know, how I'm going to do it better. So that happened a few times in my twenties. Um, I had a grand mal seizure, which was a really big mm-hmm. shift. Um, I started, well, before that I started drinking in the mornings whenever I was about 20, 22, I think we would often just drink and have cocktails in the morning, but I started like intentionally putting vodka in my orange juice and hiding it around that time. Cause I was waking up and I was, I thought I was depressed. Like I thought I was depressed. I didn't once even think it had to do anything with my drinking. I thought it was depressed and I was shaking and I started drinking in the morning. And again, I had that like golden ticket moment of like, Oh, ha again, alcohol saves the day. <laughs> yeah. If only people knew. Oh, why isn't everybody doing this? Yeah. Like, seriously. And I was hanging out with people who were partying and I started hiding it from them. So there's a part of me that knew that what I was doing was not acceptable, even to people who were drinking. So that was some weird way that I compartmentalized that without actually admitting it to myself. It's very interesting the way the denial works that I was able to the cognitive biases and stuff. But, um, and then a few years later, my grandmother died. I was living in Tahoe at a ski resort. My grandmother died and I flew home for the funeral and I wasn't drinking the way that I was normally drinking. I was still having like a beer here and there, but my tolerance was always so high that I was, I was drinking from morning until night just to keep feeding the tolerance. So during this time, uh, seizures typically happen on like the third day of withdrawal. Mm-hmm. So essentially, even though I was still drinking, my body was withdrawing. And on the night of her funeral, I had a grand mal seizure at my family's house. My whole family's there. They have to take me to the hospital for a week. And I'm in the hospital for a week because I had a really severe seizure. And um, everybody knows what it's about. And yet I find somewhere on Google that like 0.01% of seizures come from stress. And I'm like, my grandmother just died. Get off my back. Yeah. You know, and then flew back and kept doing it. And then of course, all of these little things keep adding on like the shame that I am bad. Of course I would do that. Mm. Of course, Nikki comes home, causes a scene, Mm. you know, And it's just compounding, isn't it? And in our minds, we find this as a way to rationalize and justify the behavior even more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Wow. Can we now move into 2014? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It's the year you got sober. What did that eight months look like in the lead up to the 27th of August, 2014? I was living in Colorado at another ski resort, a different ski resort. And I was yeah, not doing very well. And I can't remember what happened. Um, I was regularly driving, bartending somewhere, regularly like driving my car around. I'd forget where it was. So like the next day we have to go and find the vehicle. There's people flopped all over my house. Like I had like a party house. So there's people always over there. Um, paraphernalia everywhere. I can't remember what brought me to the edge, but essentially my family had been waiting for me to like wave my flag so they could come and get me. And I did in the end, I don't recall what happened. And so the family comes in, it's triage. They have to like pick people off of my floors, like get me, go and find the vehicle that's somewhere out somewhere. And then they drive me down to the rehab in Texas. And this is the one that I said that they couldn't get me on. a They couldn't get me on a flight because they wouldn't have accepted me. Um, so I drive down and I get to the treatment center. I have the crown on my head because I'm having a good time. I was singing like classic rock songs. My poor uncle who drove me, I was like singing the whole time we were going down and like having conversations about what do you think about this? And like, imagine I'm like this, ah, it was just bizarre. Like I remember doing it. Like I just, I just recall this trip and like really thinking that I was like, being a good conversationalist and like asking these really inquisitive questions and all of these things. It was just the most bizarre, the bizarre thing, like really not understanding, like I'm going to treatment because I'm like killing myself. Um, so we get down there and I have a gallon, a half gallon of vodka in my bag when they check me in and, um, they, it falls out of my bag And they take it from me. And I guess I'd been like really nice and like, I'm talking to everyone and they take it. And my aunt says, I turn around and I'm like, (sighs) and my claws come out and I just all of a sudden refuse. I'm not signing anything. I'm not doing anything until they give it back to me. (laughs) And essentially the only time in this whole facility's uh, history, they give me my alcohol back and they let me drink it while I sign all my papers Cause they were like, we've got to get this girl in here. And, um, so I come, I finally, I finally get in, I wake up, you know, the next day, I don't know where I'm at. Mm. I'm shaking so bad that, um, they actually think they're going to have to like take me out and take me to the hospital. Cause they were, it was a liability, like just how it was a medical detox, but it wasn't a hospital. Mm. It was not good. Mm. It was not, it was not good. So I was like semi convulsing while I was there like body trying to go into seizure, but they were like giving me drugs for it. So it's a really odd predicament to be in when your body's trying to seize, but you also have taken stuff to not let it. Yeah. It's this really weird balance in between to be conscious of. So that was just terrifying. I stay in this treatment. I do not want to be there. I have came up with a zillion reasons why I shouldn't. It was a three month treatment. Everyone told me it was a month. It was very expensive. Um, so I come up with a zillion reasons why I'm leaving, how they could send me to so many different places, how they're wasting their money, yada, yada, yada. My aunt says that she has all of these letters that I've written her that I need to get a hold of because every letter I have a new story. I have a brand new story of why everything's actually fine. Yeah. You're okay. You're okay. It was just, you were just having fun. I need to get a hold of those. So I go through this program and I actually stay. I thankfully stay, but I'm not happy. They tell me I'm friends with the people who I was in there with now or some of the the, the facilitators and stuff. They said that for the whole three months, I was like trying to throw a tiger into a pool. Like I was actively horrible. I remember like my therapist, you know, she would be like, um, I'd have to talk to like an empty chair to my like inner child. And I'd be like, you fucking kidding me. Like I'm fucking not doing this. <laughs> Like I was so, I was so resistant, but I do get out and I go to, um, sober living in Austin, Texas. I'd never been to Austin. I don't know anyone there. So I'm in the recovery community. I don't want to be there. I do not want my life to look like this. I do not want to go bowling. I do not want to like, ah, my life cannot look like this. And I, um, I relapse gloriously 
I can't remember exactly what this relapse was, but it was a, yeah, really big relapse. Um, I ended up in a detox center of several months, I don't know, like a month in. And then in this detox center, I meet a, a Lebanese, a beautiful Lebanese schizophrenic junkie. And we check out of rehab together. Mm. We're having a love affair. Mm. We check out of rehab together and um, we walk down these long train tracks, like into town to find a liquor store. I just like, I remember it in my head as part of my little movie, mm. like Bonnie and Clyde thing with like everybody behind us, like call their families, call the cops, you know? Yeah. And I stay with him for about a month and we're staying in like motels um, using the rest of the money that I have, which is not very much, but he's a, he's a heroin addict. And I hadn't up until that point did heroin. So I started doing heroin in the end. We're not partying because at this point you're not partying. You're just trying to get high. And the only people that I know in Austin, cause I don't have any friends there besides in the recovery community. The only people I know are people who have already relapsed. So then I call the people that I know that had already relapsed. So then it's like a really a, a motley crew of people who are like deep in their thing. Mm. So luckily it took me out pretty quick. Um, two or three months in, I mean, I was just maxed. Mm. I was just talking with my therapist today who I actually do work with now. We do some, some work and stuff together. She was laughing awesome. today. She was like, do you remember whenever you were calling me from the front yard of the rehab and they won't take you because your blood alcohol was too high. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I don't. And she said, you talked like you were completely normal that she was talking with the people and they were, she was going, what are you talking about? She's intoxicated. They're like, she's blowing a 0.55, but I can talk very, very straight even though. So they wouldn't let me in. And like, there's all these things that were happening. Like I couldn't get help. They wouldn't take me back at rehab. They won't take me back at the sober living. My family won't talk to me. Like, I don't know what to do. And, um, eventually I overdosed mm. and, and scare the shit out of me. And if you remember that in the beginning, the reason why I drank my why and my how was to feel big in my body and to feel big in life and to have this like exuberance about me. Mm. And whenever I overdosed, it's like, I really realized that like, Oh, I mean, I am going to, I am going to die. And this was not any part of my intention. Mm. There were a few words that came back to me from, it's always interesting how these little like blips of things that you've heard prior come back. And in that last treatment center, somebody had told me, cause I had asked really curiously and honestly asked this lady who worked there. I was like, how the fuck did you do it? Like, how did you do it? Like, it was incomprehensible to me to do anything different than what I was doing. Or like, why would I, it, I couldn't even try it on. And she told me that one day you're going to realize that you could be high or you could be happy. Mm. And that even though they used to go together, they're never going to go together anymore. And then you'll be done. Mm. And wow. that day I remembered that. And I was like, I, after that overdose, I kind of hold myself up in this room. I was renting in East Austin's very unsavory little spot that I was living in. It was across from a liquor store. I went and bought a bunch of booze. I had a bunch of pills and I was going to like make myself nurse myself back to health. You know, that's the only way I knew how to do and nothing was working. The alcohol wasn't shifting the way I felt. The pills weren't shifting the way I felt. And I didn't know anything else. And I remember hearing an AA, I was in and out of AA for like a decade. And I remember hearing, um, people would say sometimes it's like one day it's just not going to work anymore. Mm. And, you know, I really think that what they meant by that is like one day, the thing that's working, isn't going to work like in your life, like you're not going to be able to do it anymore. But I actually thought that they meant like the actual substance wasn't going to work anymore. Mm. Like, and I was like, it's not working. And it wasn't working because I just overdosed. Like I wasn't nursing the hangover. Like it was a totally different thing, yeah. but that hit me. And I'm like, it's not working anymore. It's not working anymore. And then paired with that other thing that I remembered with her saying of like, it's not going to go together anymore. Yeah, You can't make it work. And I called a sober living house that I was in that I'd been kicked out of prior because I had been like hiding booze all over the house. Like I was a liability to other people that were in there. 
and I asked them, I said, I, I need somewhere to stay. And, um, in all of Austin, there's only one house that is a high risk house. And it was this house. And that means high risk means that they'll take you if you haven't just came out of treatment. And then within that house, there was only one bed that was for people who didn't have any money. No one was giving me money anymore. And they shouldn't have given it to me because I had already proved myself like a liability to everyone else, but they did. And uh, the lady said, my friend, Linda, who I had connected with, you know, back then, but she said, come Wednesday, come on Wednesday. And it was like Sunday and I was like, fuck. And I think I drank until then probably. Mm. Um, but I showed up like a Tuesday night. This is like the bravest thing I've ever done. Mm. <laughs> like showed up Tuesday night. And I remember I walked through the door and I said, I'll sleep on your couch. And she said, come in. Mm. That was it. And that's the moment your life changed forever. Yeah. Wow. I want to switch gears for a moment here and start to talk about the coal that lives and breathes here on this earth, on this day, just knowing you for such a short amount of time and following you on Instagram and even talking now, like you exude this energy, which is so underpinned by spirituality. There's no other way I can really describe it. And I'd love for you to explain how yoga and spirituality have played a role in your recovery over the last nine years. Well, yoga really entered on like rehab number five. <laughs> it was like the first place that I had like taken a yoga class. And I really remember, I, I connected with it. I really did. And I remember thinking if I ever get sober, which I'm not like both of those thoughts happen at the same time, if I ever get sober, but I'm not, then I'm going to look into this, this yoga thing. And throughout those next like five years before I actually did get sober, I was in and out of yoga. Like I would go, instead of asking me like, how's the drinking going? You could be like, when's the last time you've been to a yoga class? And like, you get, you know, you could use that as a barometer. Mm. And God, I just was so fortunate to have such amazing teachers that were not, it was just not a physical practice, even though the physical practice is that there's a really, really powerful component of just being in your body. But they were also using the philosophy and they were also using self-inquiry. And I'd always be like, they'd ask a question and I'd be like, how do they know? Like they'd always <laughs> say something like, oh my God. Um, so that was really powerful. And one of the only places in my life that I had a semblance of quiet where I could check in with myself because I kept my life very loud. Mm. Um, so I knew that that was going to be a big component. So whenever I went to that sober living place, I found like a 30 days for $30 or something. Like I was able to like get 30 more dollars from my parents. They probably had to like call the studio and give it to them. Mm. Like they probably wouldn't even give it to me. And I went every day every day as Wanderlust in Austin, Texas, great studio, great teachers. And just every day I was there every day. And, um, I ended up taking their teacher training like six months later or something. And with probably the end of that year, I was going back to some of the, I was teaching at one rehab that I had been to and the detox center that I checked myself out of. Um, I was teaching, going back in there and teaching yoga and just like, Wow. Fucking love it. <laughs> I really remember, I'll just share this piece. I remember walking into this treatment center. The only thing I ever wanted to do in treatment was leave. <laughs> like I was obsessed, <laughs> obsessed with like this escape story. But I walked in and I taught this first class and then I walked out. And I remember when I walked out, I just started bawling at the door and I'm like, <laughs> like what a gift of sobriety. It's like, I just walked into rehab and they let me go. <laughs> like I didn't have to like jump the fence. <laughs> oh my God. Like what? Oh, it was such a big shift, such a big turning point, but like being able to share my story and to, um, to share with, to speak a language that I knew, like, it's so easy for me to walk into treatment and be like, yo, like I used to stay in that room. Like 
it was, it was so fluid, so easy for me mm. and to feel how that um, really supported other people. And do people start to ask me, how did you do it? And like, just the, the, to see how this really challenging experience could have like nuggets of, of gold in it to start to taste that mm. was like, oh my God, mm. wow. It's like that power of experience coupled with giving back, you know, like yeah. there's, there's something just so, so powerful about bringing those two elements together. Yeah, absolutely. And Cole, you talk about underpinning your teachings with compassionate inquiry. Can you explain a little bit more about this? Yeah. So compassionate inquiry is like just getting to know ourselves, asking questions, because especially if you're anything like me and all humans do it to a different extreme, but like this, our tendency and proclivity towards denial, towards telling ourselves a story and then believing it, I am bad. I am unworthy. That really requires us to get curious and to dig underneath the story and to figure out where it's coming from. And that never is going to happen. We run on patterns. Our brain wants to do the thing it always did. That's just the way that we're wired. So if we don't say, wait, hold on, I'm going to investigate this, we really don't have much of a chance. So in order to stay curious about ourselves, to get honest and to really listen to like what comes up, it's, it's a superpower like that. It, it can't happen any other way. Mm. You can take the drinking away or you can take the sex away or you can take the thing away. And that's a totally different thing than recovery. Abstinence is different than recovery. Yeah. But in order to be in recovery, to rediscover the parts of you that you haven't allowed, the parts of you that you, you know, have walked away from a long time ago and to reconcile that into a rediscovery of wholeness, you have to to inquire. And this is not the type of inquiry where you're like, you know, what happened here? You know, or Pema Chodron says like, we don't go after our walls with a sledgehammer. We come slowly and we're like, Hmm, interesting. What do we have here? I wonder what, like, I wonder, I wonder to have some energy of awe into how we've survived this long and the intellect, like our inner intellect that has helped keep us alive our whole lives, even if it was misguided, but, and that's where the compassion piece come in. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, wow. Mm-hmm. And that to me is, is recovery. That's so, so beautiful. What did you think that you discovered about yourself through your own compassionate inquiry journey? Oh, so much. Um, discovered how much that I wanted to belong, that I want to belong and how that's really been a driving force in all of, in all of my things. And it is for everyone, whether how much we want to admit it or not. Um, we are wired, we are born to connect. So it makes sense that the only, that our greatest fear is that we don't. So everything that we do is, you know, either to protect ourselves from pain or to connect with other people. And we live between those two spectrums um, to learn that I was hurt that I was in like severe pain and shame. I did not want to see that. (laughs) I did not want to see that. And to take care of the parts of me that, um, that were underneath all of the masks and underneath all of the costumes that I wore so well, maybe not so well, um, in ways very well to myself. Mm. Like it was apparent to other people, but in order to get underneath those masks, because I think that we, we identify, we have to put so many things on due to our, our traumas, our experiences, our pains. Like we paint these coats over ourselves to protect ourselves and it's natural, it's normal and it's intelligent. But then we forget that we're wearing them. Like we forget that we've put all of that on there and then we identify with the costume Mm. and then there's no way to take it off if we don't know we're wearing it. So that is the piece that we're, that we're learning and that I had to learn of like, what is me and what is not me? Mm. And it's a lifelong journey, isn't it? I mean, were there any, having done some of this work myself, I know how incredibly painful it can be, particularly when you don't have a substance to numb the edges. 
Was there any ever time? Was there ever a time that you wanted to drink or use, particularly when you've been going through this work, to get yourself out of it again, or do you know that sobriety is is the way forward and that's it for you? Well, I hope. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll never say I'll never say never, but um, other stranger things have happened to to many many people, um, but. I would have never believed it. People used to say in AA, like one day the desire will be gone. And I used to say, not for me. Mm. I'll always think about this. I will, I will never not always be obsessed with this. And lo and behold, quite quickly, it dissipated for me. And no, it hasn't came back. Sometimes I'll have little things come up. Like it's not a craving or it's not a desire, but it's like a really interesting. I'm like, there's a bottle of wine over there. And like, I could just grab it and drink it and my life would go poof. (laughs) And it's just sitting there like really innocent. Like, why is that not like locked up and guarded by, you know, an (laughs) army of men? Like, it's just right there. So I have like those thoughts come up sometimes, but never like, um, I want to go and drink it. Just this curious thought that like, I can't believe that it's just sitting right there. But the desire is gone. And I've went through a lot of really hard things. And I just know that that's not going to help. It's probably the last thing that's going to help. It's absolutely the case, isn't it? Whenever I, you know, I don't don't crave alcohol either anymore. Um, And, you know, on the odd occasion, I'll think to myself, oh, like I just wish I could have a drink or, you know, party with my friends like the old days. But then I very quickly remind myself that it's it's never going to look the way I think it's going to look. And, yeah. you know, it's never just one. So, you know, you just have to, like, get get back to honesty, get back to reality, and then, you know, it, it quickly shifts. Cole, there's something that I've heard you say, and I'm going to quote you here because I think it's really beautiful and I want to get this right. You said, when it comes to addiction, it's never just the thing. It's grief and trauma and patterns and past experiences and relationships and shame all bundled together. For somebody listening now who either personally or has a loved one who's struggling with addiction, what can you, I'd love you to unpack that a little bit more because it it really isn't about alcoholics and addicts. They don't drink and use because they love drinking and using really at the end of the day like it's not actually about the alcohol or the drug it's 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 that masking of the pain it's that grief it's that trauma what what are your thoughts on that i think that it's really easy to focus on the thing because the thing is like overwhelmingly in our face it's you know it's easy to say that the drinking is the problem and the or the and the sex is the problem but that the thing is actually the solution. Like that's the thing that we've been using in order to support ourselves through shit that's hard through the problem. So like what actually is the thing underneath? Like what is the pain and underneath it? So that's the part that I'm interested in. And that's the part that we talk about, like in my program, it's like, we're not like, how many drinks did you have this week? Or like, we're not, we're not doing any of that. Like that is a side note. It's, it's a side note of like, how did you, how did you tend to your hurt? this week? How did you tend to yourself this week? Um, that's, that's what's of interest. And it's getting to know to ourselves as well, that that is where the focus is. It's like, that's, that's the support. Because again, like we said earlier, you cannot drink and not be in recovery. Like you can abstain and hate yourself. Yeah. And go batshit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a pretty scary place to be. Mm-hmm. how do you maintain your own recovery today? Like you mentioned you were in and out of 12 step. Like, are there any specific like tools that you have? I'm, I'm quite connected in my own self-inquiry, my reading, my, you know, what I'm, what I'm curious about. I'm insatiably curious. So I'm always doing uh, reflection, self-inquiry. I, go to therapy. I've been going to therapy forever. (laughs) It's so powerful. I'm doing internal family systems with my therapist right now, which is a really powerful modality and a paradigm. I'm currently doing a holotropic breathwork training, which has been a powerful part of my program. Um, 
my yoga practice, my evolving um, yoga practice. It was always shifting. Buddhist philosophy has been a really, really big, and psychology has been a really, really big support for me. That's the model that I prefer to like see the lens of the human experience through. And teaching for me, like, God, do I teach what I need to hear? Mm-hmm. And I really feel like I'm in it with people when I teach. Like I'm not, it, that, that helps me with a sense of community. It helps me being able to, um, to share the experience with other people in my teaching. Mm. It's beautiful. And it's almost that active service, isn't it? Like I know that when I'm taking people through the work and I'm sharing what I've learned so far along my journey, like it keeps me grounded and right in the center of it. And I think that for me anyway, that's the safest place to be. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If I wasn't talking about it, if I wasn't sharing about it, you know, I think that that's really important. And, you know, every time we're sharing, it's the shame whittles away. Mm-hmm. And it's also very, it's very easy for me as well to forget as humans, we just tend to forget that is something that happens. And I would be lying if I said that sometimes I didn't look back and say, was it really that bad? Mm-hmm. And I get moments of like, when I'm sharing my story, like on a podcast, I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. Or like w- earlier when I said my therapist, my old therapist had mentioned today, like, do you remember when they wouldn't take you to detox because your blood alcohol was too high? I'm like, oh, you're right. I was it was real because there is a part of me that wants to say it wasn't that bad. You're better now, you know? So that voice still lives there. It's not an active craving, but there is that part of me that's kind of like, really, you're not going to have another glass of wine for your rest of your life. (laughs) Is that when you then play the tape forward or what do you do internally when those thoughts do come up? I just have to get honest. Yeah. I'm like, hold on. Yeah. It was worse than that. It's just what, I mean, cause I can't remember a lot of it very quickly. I could ask, I could ask a few questions, mm. um, but I don't need to, I mean, I can, I can bring it up in my mind, but it's kind of interesting. I can just now kind of say, uh huh. I see you like to that part of me mm. of like, that's cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Here you are again. <laughs> Here you are again. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> oh, Cole. I have honestly just loved hearing your experience with all of this and your interpretation and how you live life in recovery. Like it's just such a beautiful lens to look through. There's one final question that I have for you. And that is that I'd really love to know if you were just to choose three non-negotiables, three non-negotiables that allow you to live life today, happy, joyous, and free, what would they be? Mm. Movement, some sort of movement, getting in the body, this somatic connection. Mm. Um, it is so shifting because we, we, we feel before we think. Self-reflection, which really hits more of the thinky part of me, mm. you know, continuing mm. to ask questions, continuing to stay curious. Curiosity is a superpower. Um, and like an outer exploration, me moving around the world, me changing scenes, me figuring out who I am in Morocco or what will I be like when I'm in Guatemala or like having these different parts of myself come out in different places and getting to interact in the world. And it's another big component of this was a dream as a little girl of being able to explore the world. And that keeps me in gratitude and it keeps me in wonder as well. It's so beautiful. It's like you've just touched there on body, mind, and spirit in a way, yeah. hitting all three of those mm-hmm. marks. I love that. Mm-hmm. Cole, if people want to find out more about you, about Emerge, and all the fun- wonderful things that you're doing, where should they go? Cole Champs Yoga on all the things. I've been teaching on YouTube for like eight years. So I probably have like 2000 videos on YouTube. So if wow. you're looking for yoga practice, head over there. I actually am just releasing this week, but I know that this podcast is coming out later, a seven day yoga and sobriety series on YouTube. So that will be there by the time you listen to this. And it's, it's great. Um, Cold Chance Yoga, you'll find out about retreats and trainings. This summer in Spain, I'm doing a yoga and holotropic breathwork training. Uh, I mean, sorry, retreat in Spain, um, which will be really beautiful. Another retreat in Thailand in November. 
that will be exploring like Buddhist philosophy and yoga and ritual. So there's lots of things going up. I teach teacher trainings as well and uh, recovery explorations and always percolating and plotting and planning something, something beautiful. That's incredible. I'll make sure that I pop all of that information in the episode show notes. As we said before we started recording today, I'm heading to Bali in June. So I'm going to see you there. We're going to catch up and practice some yoga together. I absolutely cannot wait for that. We say here on Behind the Smile that when we recover loudly, no one needs suffer in silence. So thank you so, so much for your time, your story. I am just incredibly 